Yeah, so I, I think I know how we should start the show this time. Would that be a certain cartel song, perhaps? Nah, I mean, well, that would be appropriate um, after the, the talking stuff. <laughs> the talking stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm thinking just start with, this is public announcement, and then, you know, we say our names. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Like that shit? Exactly. Like, yeah, I just think people don't know who we are or what they're listening to. I think I prefer the mystery of it, though. You of know? course you do, man. I know you think that mystery and mythology are so important, <laughs> but, you know, this isn't fucking Clue. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe that would be better. Um, you know what? Let's do it real pro. Like, what is the most executive way to do an intro? However, a, a drive-time morning DJ would have done it. You know, like, <laughs> I, I really should have been a shock jock. What a life, man. That could have been you. Yeah, you, you talk shit from 6 to 10 a.m., and then you're done. <laughs> <laughs> you've got the late morning soul cycle all to yourself you can just roam the streets freely and it's just a different world <laughs> that, that sounds about right it's great yeah but all right all right how about our names then the show name and then we explain what we're you know talking about this week blah 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 yeah yeah i got you all right so we'd probably have some music um and then this is james ellis and i'm chris black you're listening to public announcement this week we talked to kevin sanders from the band cartel and what should be next? Uh, I mean, we'll explain that in 2007, Cartel participated in MTV's Band in the Bubble. Presented by Dr. Pepper, Walmart, KFC. The big three, man. Yeah, and then on the, on the heels of their blockbuster debut, Chroma, and their single, Honestly, they were offered their own MTV reality show where they had to live inside of um, a bubble. Yeah, like a, like a huge glass bubble structure constructed on manhattan's pier 40 something right 54 man come on get us right oh, oh my bad no that that shit is actually famous pier 54 is where the titanic was apparently there it was there I, i've never seen the movie <laughs> titanic star wars lord of the rings i love this list of movies you pretend you've never seen no nah, man i've i've never seen those movies i will never see those movies <laughs> Haley's tried to make me watch titanic a, a bunch of times and i'm just not i'm not having it. i have no interest <laughs> I mean, you should check it out. I mean, everyone loves Leo de Janeiro. Yeah, yeah. But the spot where Leo loaded up on the Titanic, that's where MTV constructed this glass biodome shit outfitted with a recording studio, and the band had to live there for a month. While 5011 webcams track their every move. Yeah, man. 5011. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how many. A lot of webcams everywhere. Camera people wearing all black, following you around all day, all night. You know, the full reality show experience. Yeah. Yeah, and we should note that at the time, you were the band's manager. Yeah, man, high-level management. I was killing the game. <laughs> yeah, so something like that, and then we'll cut straight to honestly. All right. All right nah, nah, now that I'm thinking, let's put the second track on, the one from the self-titled album. From the Bubble that, record. Yes, that's the one from the Bubble. That's the that's the tune I like. That's the the super riff. Um yeah, so maybe tonight sing it for the first time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. All right. Sounds just yeah. like that. If I had been head of AR, that would have been the single. Oh, I'm sure it would have, man. I know you love imagining yourself as some fucking AR nerd. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like a nerdy Mr. Big from Wayne's World. All right, man. Do you? All right. Uh, but I, I just remember the name of the song is Tonight. So let's just put that on. All right. I think 
the reason that this even came to mind was I think it started with your book. When your book came out, I remember there was a, there was a Times piece and the person, they linked to the bubble. They linked to the MTV site and you can watch all of the episodes. But that got me thinking about that whole experience. I've never really learned about the whole behind the scenes. I certainly don't know Kevin's perspective on the whole thing. My question is, what was that experience for Kevin? What is it like to be some kid that just wants to play in a band and then it turns out that you spend your 20s in the back of a tour bus. I've played in bands since I was 12, but I don't quite understand that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't, but it's also in a lot of ways a typical band story, you know? I mean, sure. you're in high school, you're in a garage or basement with your shitty friends and you're influenced by a lot of different stuff because you're trying to find yourself. So you're listening to you know, Earth Crisis, you're listening to Newfound Glory, you're listening to The Smiths. Well, I love how at that age, your mind can reconcile your interest in, you know, all three of those references. <laughs> While at the same time, you might need to listen to something heavy as hell because you're pissed. Yeah. You might hear Earth Crisis and think, you know what? I think we do need a firestorm to purify. You know, I kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's because when you're that age, you are angsty, and that's like a real thing. That's not just a joke. And I think that's why a lot of kids are drawn to, you know, hardcore or punk or any sort of aggressive music. But at the same time, you're figuring out how to handle your emotions. And I think that if you're exposed to bands that are talking about those emotional things, you're going to be just as drawn to that because it requires both of those things to be a fully formed teen. I like this idea of the recipe for the fully formed teen. <laughs> I don't know if I'm able to speak on it, but I have my own <laughs> theories. Oh, I know. <laughs> Cartel was kind of the sound of that time. I mean, you had Fallout Boy. Fallout Boy was like what the biggest thing in that yeah, in that I think lane. That, that time period is when that sound kind of took over as far as popular music goes. Um, I think that there were bands like Fallout Boy, and there was Pank the Disco, and blah blah blah. All these bands, um, and Cartel was. It was in the same vein, and it worked. You know, they had they had a song that people liked, and I I think that that genre had a real run. The thing that I would like to understand from Kevin's perspective is how do you go from being that teenager that is trying to play music with your friends in a garage, and you you barely even know how to play your instruments, but you just love it. You just love the way it feels having this thing with your friends, this kind of unique project that you get to work on. And I certainly identify with that. I've never been a pro musician, but I've been playing in bands for a long time. I'll probably always will. My whole plan is to be the dude playing at the ski lodge <laughs> with your other cronies. And you've got your big dad rig that's way more expensive than it ought to be. Semi-professional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my, uh, that is my dream. Because I do love that feeling of playing in a band. Always have. And I think what's interesting with Kevin and with Cartel in general is that it seems like they were able to translate that feeling into this profession and were able to maintain that feeling all through their 20s because they did this for a decade. And I'm sure when they started out, they weren't really imagining what it would feel like to be in the back of the tour bus and it's been six months and you haven't been home. So I'm curious about that whole idea and how something like Band in the Bubble colors that. How something like that changes the course of, of your career and the way you approach music. Yeah, I mean, totally, because the show does change everything. So you excited to talk to Kevin? I know it's been a little while since you two have uh, 
talk shop? Um, no, I am. I, I want to hear his perspective on this because, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about it myself. And, um, you know, when you do something like this with people you've known your whole lives, it can get a little hairy at the end, a little rocky. And I think that's okay. I think that much closeness is not really natural. Um, those guys are, you know, I love them. They're, they're my friends. Yeah, of course. And I don't look at this experience in any way but a positive one because it was fun. And um, as odd as it all is, you know, we experience it together. And that's something that all of us will be able to share and talk about forever. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> you ready to head over there? Okay, let's do it. What's up? What car do you have now? Uh, uh, it's a Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> What is it really? No. <laughs> it's, like, it's a it's a Bentley. It's oh, it's like an adult Volkswagen. Yeah. Well, I think the best place to start is maybe just your name and who you are. I'm Kevin Sanders. I have played drums in Cartel since the beginning. <laughs> that was twelve years ago. Jesus, man. Let me see if I get the setup right. You play drums in a band that became popular very quickly. Yes. The year is two thousand five. Your debut full-length, Chroma, was doing so well that you were signed to Epic Records. Mm -hmm. All right. Then in the process of making your hotly anticipated follow-up release, the band was offered your own MTV reality show, Band in a Bubble, sponsored, of course, by Dr. Pepper. In conjunction with Walmart and KFC. Come on, bro. Like, you're forgetting uh, come on, this like, is Fortune 500 we're messing around with, right? Yeah, man. Come on. I believe part of the deal no was respect. that your face would be on every Dr. Pepper can for uh, a limited time. Yes, that wasn't even really. <laughs> I, I don't remember that even being like a big talking point. Oh well, I remember your friends' faces on Dr. Pepper cans. What's going on? It's weird. It's it's so crazy because at the time it was just like another thing on the page. It yeah. didn't even really resonate or seem like such a big deal. But I don't know how that can be. Didn't they say you're going to be on every Dr. Pepper can in the world? Yeah, but they didn't sell it that hard. They they didn't sell it that hard because maybe they thought we weren't into that part of it or something. Oh, oh. But they, I mean, it was on the, like I said, it's on the paper, but it's not, it wasn't that serious or it's not what we were focused on at least. Could have led with that almost and had yeah. us like, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, you're going to shoot a commercial and be on the, on the oh bottom. Oh my God, I totally forgot about forgot the about the commercial. That in of itself was like, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And so this is reality television. The premise of the show is that you're making the new record in Manhattan, but, um, but not in a studio, at least not a conventional studio. Rather, you're camped out on Pier 54, living inside a large glass uh, bubble. They called it a bubble. It looked like an igloo. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just loads of cameras everywhere. People can live stream this thing 24 hours a day. Yeah, and this was 2007. So this was like early wave, yeah, yeah, almost yeah. ahead of its time before people really... I think we're sitting at their computers the way they do now or had such, a, such access through. Yeah, it wasn't like everything was on your phone. But yeah, the iPhone wasn't even around. No, no, we were no. still on. Sidekicks, bro. We were Blackberries. Was that was what we were all. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember. Y'all love that BBM. So, yeah, you could. There were 23 cameras because of the 23 flavors that are in Dr. Oh my Pepper. God, I 23 <laughs> was the number for everything. So, it was originally going to be 23 days. Oh. I remember that, but I did not. The flavor thing, I did not remember. 23 webcams? Whether it's one or twenty-three, it's just uh, it's just spooky. I mean, what, what spookers out there on the internet just watching a webcam of anything? I mean, this shit was insane. It was going all the time, it, twenty-four hours a day. It really was happening like that. With twenty-three webcams all streaming live twenty-four-seven, there's nowhere to hide. If you wanted to watch us sleep, you could, 
And yeah, then the rest was four episodes on MTV. On the graveyard time slot of Saturday nights at 8 p.m. <laughs> Which yeah. was something yeah. that I don't think any of us realized at the yeah. time. Basically like, a, Jan- a January movie release. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect comparison. It really is. Yeah. Well, what about the band? How'd you guys get started? So the band was basically some of the same guys that we had all known and played with together. We sort of started Cartel as a joke. Everything had ended with the previous band, and it was like, all right, well, let's start a band because we're not playing. I'd rather play than not play. All of a sudden, we had actually recorded an EP legitimately and, and pressed it legitimately, which we had never done. Right. And what was special about the EP? It was a good, magical set of songs. Yeah. Um, like People were like, you always struggled because your friends and your family, are, you never know. If- what they really think. Yeah. I mean, they have to be your fans. But once those people were reacting more emphatically than they had before, you're like, okay. And then like you start to see like it kind of spread a little bit. I remember thinking it was really good, like really pro. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, the the EP was a step above what we'd been doing. It was uh, pretty professional, recorded in a real studio, yeah. pressed properly onto CDs. And you're not stickering CDRs and stuff. Yeah, this isn't fucking disc makers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Rad EP. Everyone's excited. So what next? Is this the part where you get the record deal? Our guitar player at the time knew the guys in Copeland. Oh, man, they suck. (laughs) (laughs) They were signed to the Militia Group. Through our guitar player Andy's experience with them, had met the label owner. So therein lies just like every other job you've ever had. Yeah, so someone you knew knew a guy who knew a guy. Right. So that was our direct line to a label and they had already had Copeland. They had a band. Was it Rufio? They had, they had a, a band. Uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like the way Drive Through was with like Newfound Glory and Saves the Day and some of those groups where it was like bands after that just got big because you were there. Yeah, just being on Drive Through. Exactly. People were fans of not only bands, but labels were also a thing to latch onto. Yeah, the way we looked at Fat Wreck and Epitaph. All oh, these 10 bands on this one comp. Hell yeah. 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 You know, and so we were like blown away by that. But. We had a line to a label and we sent that in and it was like, can you guys do more songs like this? And we're like, yes. And <laughs> they ended up taking it. We ended up going back in the studio and doing two other songs to make it a seven song EP. And then that was what we put out and right. started. So Chris, I mean, what was your involvement at this time? I had just started working with the band. I had just kind of figured out that what they had um, was starting to happen and that I could you know, insert myself and, and help them out, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, you know, I had my, my boss at the time for shod, his brother for sheed, um, was managing collective soul at the time, Atlanta <laughs> legends, collective soul. So I had been kind of seeing that happen and learned what a manager did and how that whole business worked, uh, and knew that I could apply what I had seen to, to cartel and what was happening. Okay, so you're on board, and what, a militia group's getting interested? Like, what's going on? I mean, I distinctly remember going to their office in, like, the shitty suburbs in Orange County in, like, a strip Naturally. mall. Literally in a strip mall. Um, and just, it was the right thing to do at the time, and the label had this weird momentum and it wasn't because of one particular artist. It was, like, their thing. And I thought their thing was lame. Do you feel like Militia Group was the right move for them? Absolutely. Because Militia Group had a deal with Sony. You just personally did not like... uh, Because they were... Rory's a bozo. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a great opportunity. It's not like shit was going bonkers. 
Right. I guess uh, the Beatlemania phase hadn't set in yet. So the record is released on Militia Group, but then it's released again on Epic, or you're you're signed to... Chroma came out on Militia Group, but because of the structure of their deal with Sony, Epic or Columbia had first right of refusal, and Epic picked up the record and upstreamed it, uh, and it was re-released on Epic. Upstream. I like the sound of that. But you don't have to sign with epic or columbia do you if we were to go with another label outside of the family they would have had to buy cartel out of their contract and militia group would have made money either way huh because i do remember meeting with other labels you know but it, they almost made it sound like we can't really it, it would cost us a fortune to to get this band because it's built into the contract that you're right. going to go to once things were heating up and majors were looking. Sony looked in their paperwork and said, "Well, like we've we've kind of got these guys." That's why the major labels do these deals with smaller labels because if one thing upstreams and is a hit, then they've made their money back. Mm, I got you. Additionally, if if they sign an artist to a major and don't think they're ready for the big time, they'll downstream it to their indie partner and have it build some buzz before they bring it up to the big leagues. So things are happening. Hey, what's the next piece? It kept. It was a slow progression. All of a sudden, it was like, "We'll help you finance a van," but the touring side is the hardest part. The hardest part that no one really knows about is that getting shows is always the hardest part. Oh, at that stage, like anybody will put their label name on the back and get you some distribution. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. like, yeah, that's the easy part. Touring is the fucking difficult thing. We had this EP and we had this label, and we and then it was like, okay, here we go, out on the road. Yeah. So when was the first tour? The first tour was fall of 04 real tour and that was the full nationwide you're everywhere just grinding you know nowadays i don't think bands tour like that like they did like they really busted their ass like it was serious serious shit yeah i remember i mean you're just uh you're just gone you're yeah. about a year or two into it and you're like oh man like i remember like ha having to think why i hadn't really planned an exit strategy Right. Had this gone anywhere else but up. You know, I would get calls from from guys in the band and they'd be really stressed out. And a big big part of my job when they were on the road was to kind of talk them off the ledge. You know, if, if, if it was going poorly or if something hadn't worked out that we, we had planned for, you know, it was uh, my job to keep the attitude positive and just kind of keep looking forward and, and stay focused on the, the goal. Because if it's very easy to get dark. <laughs> Is there anything about the early days where you look back and you think, I wish I'd known that at that age? The thing I look back on, not with regret, but just being sort of naive to, is that when we got to that point of major label help, we sort of let go. Mm. We stopped. All of these professionals are coming on board. You put out Thriller. What am I going to do? Right. You do it. Like you take it to the next step because that's kind of what you're here to do. And we so more they or tell less, you they're there to do. Right. You know? And we had always been a yes band. Yeah. Yeah. I can confirm that fact. You want to do this? You'll do it. Yes to that. And yes to this. <laughs> but there's two sides to that coin. I mean, you have to let people at that level do their jobs and trust them to do their jobs. And I think part of the reason that, uh, you know, Cartel was successful is because of how easy they were to work with and how they were willing to do what was required and was asked of them by these people in those positions and just, you know, busted their ass. You guys busted your asses. You did what you needed to do when you were asked to do it. And a lot of bands are too precious and make the mistake of holding on to every little thing for too long until people don't want to work with them because they're difficult. I do think it goes both ways. You know, my experience of working with the band 
when we were shooting the videos or we're doing the record package is that it was always a pleasure to work with the band. No, that's how I think that's how their reputation in the industry was like, yeah, these guys are cool. They're down. They show up on time. They might be stoned, but they're going to do what they, you ask them to do. And they're going to do it right. And they're going to be funny and they're going to be cool. When athletics, uh, the design firm, I was a partner in for 11 years when athletics did the honestly video, I remember being really impressed that you guys were willing to put yourselves into the hands of all these professionals. That day, you had to hang out in a weird, ramshackle, Williamsburg, Brooklyn loft space where we had built the set for all the performance footage. Yeah. You know, that day, uh, you guys have to wear what we tell you to wear. Someone's going to plaster you with makeup, so- probably <laughs> give you a haircut. And I just remember you guys having a great attitude about it. And I think it would have been easy to just not have that attitude. You guys were new jacks. You'd never done this. This was your first serious video, first real budget. But I think that video is a great example of they paid, Epic Records paid a lot of money. Well, I mean, we did have to do it twice. I think the second time they paid us... Um, it's like $25,000. $25,000 to reshoot it because of, I think, Will's hair. They didn't like Will's hair. <laughs> that is so ridiculous. What about the actual haircut? What did we do for that? There were five people in my hotel room at the Paramount watching him get a $25,000 haircut. <laughs> The look, I've never seen someone value look so much. And then also not really value $25,000. And you're like... Yeah, that's more accurate, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But let's back up just a little bit. Epic Records signed you because they loved Chroma. I mean, they loved Honestly. Where does all that come from? We had recorded Honestly first. Or we had done like a, a version of it with Zach and Kenneth before we recorded the record. And who's... Zach and Kenneth. Zach and Kenneth are were in-house engineers for Tree Sound uh, Studios uh, in Georgia. So what, like those two hook you guys up? You had these two young guns come here. We'll give you a deal in one of our side studios, and we ended up doing honestly. And that was kind of one of the things we, I guess, one of the first songs we had sent to Militia Group. They're like, "Oh my god, yes, do the record, more. yeah, more and more of this." So we we did the record. So you've got legit producers on board. You make Chroma for Militia Group, and now people are really excited. Yeah, that's when things really started to pick up. So we, we were, I forget the tour we were on at the time in that fall, but we spun into the new year of 06, and we were like, that was a nine-week tour. It was like, I think, A, B, and C markets. So, I mean, it was the whole damn country. That's when people start freaking out. And now the whirlwind started, and it just never never ends, right? We did two, we came home, we did two weeks of our own headline stuff. And then it was like warp tour in that summer. By then we were already on Epic. The video was like on MTV, on our back of our bus on warp tour. And then like we headlined for the next seven years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was like, that was well, that warp tour. I mean, that's when warp tour like really mattered. And that whole, I mean, that whole genre was just exploding and turning into popular music. You know? It was, there was no that's... like, uh, I guess Ozfest was still around at the time, you know? So like Ozfest had really taken some of the hardcore stuff out of that. So really, World Tour was still very much these post-hardcore pop bands that had breakdowns, more or less, and then you had the Less Than Jakes and the, the Real Big Fish stuff that was still very much a part of where that, that right. tour started. Yeah, there was like an old guard that was kind of, yeah, like the original. But Warp Tour was a, a turning point, I mean, because I think you guys were like, I mean, I just remember at the end of that, you were just fucking spent. Like, it was gnarly. I mean, well, that was the gnarliest year of my life, and we had spent... 
nine weeks gone, a week home, two weeks gone, a week home, nine weeks gone, two weeks home, eight weeks gone, Christmas. Jesus. That year. So it was like 10 or 11 months. I think we played close to 300 shows that year. <sighs> Got to give the people what they want. <laughs> well, we've talked in the past and you've told me about how you know, the fact that touring exploded so quickly is almost too fast. And um, you, you had a whole like philosophy on yeah. how quickly one should grow. Grow as slowly as you can. The fact that we went from being a two of four band to a four of four band, we missed out on maybe a year. Maybe that year should have been spent. Yeah, just just building up the fan base, I guess. It's easy to say that now, though. You know, in the moment, I'm sure everything's happening. And what are you going to say? No. Sorry, guys. Don't put that song on the radio. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't th until later that we were like, oh wow, like marinating in that three or four spot, being the main support are things that slowly like slowly grow like you develop real fans versus being a commercially successful band and you have the song of the quarter fans and there's a big difference some people will never you know will never leave yeah i mean you don't hear about pearl jam really anymore uh, but any night they want they can go sell out yeah. madison square garden totally yeah. all right the record's out you're touring non-stop you got a record deal. Where does Band in a Bubble come from? The bubble came up at some point. Like, hey, here's this thing. Where, do you, where are you when you hear this news? So I'm in the back of the bus somewhere. Actually, Chris, you probably got the news first, right? I got a phone call and I was told uh, basic, like, you know, elevator pitch about it. But the whole thing was like, they've done this before in Australia. And it was like relatively successful. But Mike was very honest. He was like, other bands have passed on this. Like, there are a couple other bands have passed on this. And it was bands that well, we, mo yeah, motion, we knew. Motion you know. City Soundtrack passed because we talked to them about it. They're like, oh, yeah, we passed on that. Yeah, and those and, guys would have been, that yeah, would have been terrible. And, and a lot of it was that, like, they there was going to be, like, some, like, censorship on lyrical content. We weren't very edgy, and we never, like, we didn't cuss and anything. And that band, like, fancied themselves to be very edgy, which I find really funny. Like, because they're... <laughs> They're really not. It, it wasn't going to line up with 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 who they were at all. Yeah, They're like, definitely not. Yeah, no they way. didn't have. I mean, it was more to me is they didn't have the personality for that either. Totally. Like, I don't think it would have been a good show. No, you know, like yeah, I don't think it would be a show. Not anything about them. It's just like it wasn't right fit. I I got that call. Mike explained it to me, and then I told somebody. So then it came down the pipeline, and it's basically like, hey, you guys want to do this show and. You're like, what? Yeah, you kind of have to wrap your head around what the hell are you talking about? They pitch you this show. You know, how long do you have to decide? Not long. It seemed quick. They were ready to pull the trigger. And so I'm sure everybody wants you to do it, or at least Epic. It wasn't like Epic Records says you have to do this, but it would be really a good idea for you to do this. So that's sort of where the the arm twist comes from. We're looking at it like, all right, our record cycles is dying honestly got to like 19 on the charts top 40 or whatever that's pretty good good but not you, you're not that guaranteed guarantee, you know exactly. if you're top if you're anything. top 10 and, and above you're going to get shows and things and opportunities put you in a whole different pipeline we you know we'd just done the same thing else thing we maybe not be going to radio with it this idea comes up and all you can think about is that like the label like wants you to do it 
Yeah, clearly. You know, like, I mean, to them, they're going to get free press. Sure. They definitely thought that it was going to change their lives. Yeah. Like, I, it was, you're going into every household. It's like they thought it was some, like, Kardashian shit. I, I don't think we were ever under that illusion. And At I, all. I thought it was just some exposure 100% like a and, funny and, thing and, to and do like a goof totally just because like it I mean sounds so goofy and you know it's just a mini show or whatever the, the show was was four episodes at 30 two minutes hour, two hours that's what I'm saying it's, it's nothing. two hours that is one episode of the bachelor <laughs> that's true <laughs> yeah. one and that was our entire show that's not life change it's just not it's there's not, no way you, it doesn't even have time to be big and again this is sort of before uh, things being available the day after on some sort of streaming content. This right. is before you had to watch it Saturday nights at eight o'clock on MTV. It was so easy to forget or pass over. And again, it's just kind of there for those that knew about us. Yeah, yeah, but I don't want to minimize the show, you know, because there is legitimacy in saying you have a television show on MTV. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially exactly. in two thousand seven. It's a big. It's kind of a big deal. I mean, right, right, and and you so you feel pressure to do it. I'm sure that... Right. Well, so what were the alternatives? All right, we pushed Say Anything Else. If that song didn't do out radio at all, you would have not gotten a third single, third video. If they had sensed the blood in the water at that point, you'd have probably gotten dropped then. Definitely. They would have been like, there's no option. You're done. I can't stress enough how hot and cold that business is when you're hot those people fucking love you and i mean we experienced it i mean we've been in that building and they're kissing your ass and i think some of it is genuine i think some of those people are nice people who are good at their jobs but i think if you're making somebody money they fucking love you i mean it's it's a very easy thing to understand i I don't know if that's a realistic thing that people really understand but that's really how it is you are about results about success about money and about the next thing you're gonna do to make more of those corporate man it's It's just like anything else yeah it's real deal and it's surprising because it's so personal in its content you know and that's where it becomes so sensitive and yet epic would have been like they got to 20 or 19 good for them not good enough for us what's the next band i mean you got to understand what these people are saying to these guys too all the smoke being blown up your ass all that shit is very real i mean you know the the president of epic records is like standing up on a table like this is the best song you know like yeah like bullshit that you see on tv and like you know empire now and like all these shows like that really happens like these guys they have to believe it you know what i mean they have to like they're giving you money and they're putting all of this manpower behind you. And if they don't believe it, then who else is going to? I mean, it's a momentum business. It's obviously a hit business, but you know, I'm sure that the moment that they sense that the tide has changed. They got to right. move on. <laughs> right, right. I mean, their job is to make hits and everyone knows that not everything is a hit. How can they sell a third single to a band that hasn't eclipsed 20 when I'm up against Justin Timberlake and, and Beyonce. And I mean, I say that all the time. I mean, I say that about my job at the time. When the product is good, the yeah. job is easy, man. I'm fielding these calls. I'm not writing the song and deciding if people like it or not. I'm They're bringing me the, the product, and I'm saying we we're all agreeing this is good. Then all of us, the band, myself, the label, the booking agent, the tour, everyone has to go out and storm the public, you know, and that's just... But I don't know how anyone could feel more pressure than the band because it's it's truly on them yeah. for it to be good or bad, you know, and that that's what yeah, matters. You're the end of the line. You make the final decisions. And you know, bands get a lot of flack for blaming other people. You know, band. You know, that's like a, a known story. And there, you know, the band blames 
the manager, the booking agent, the label. And I mean, you have to think about it from the bands, what corner they're in. And I can't imagine having to come to terms with the fact that something that I, is very personal to me is now in the hands of all of these professionals. Once you turn it in, it's completely out of your hands, really. Yeah. And now it's in the hands of the Epic team. I'm sure you're looking at them just feeling like you're fucking pros. Yeah. Epic yeah. Records at the time was as big as it gets. I mean, it was as, you know, there's four or five major labels at the time and they're, you know, they're up there. There's no reason for the band to not think that those people can do their jobs. Like, you know, Kevin's saying that like, oh, we just kind of let them roll with it. And there's a reason for that is because that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is their business. Sit back, relax. We're Epic Like Records. Kevin can't go do radio promotion. That's not Kevin's job. Yeah. And I fully, we fully believed in them. And so this, like this show comes around, you know, it's something you have to do. Like we can't, we, we could, we could not, we could not have pulled emotion to soundtrack and say, like, it's not us. We weren't, <laughs> no, we weren't in that position. And I also think, I think they were the right band for the show. To be completely honest, I don't, they are funny. They have the personalities for that. That's where we blew it. MTV wanted a drama. They wanted the real world. They, want, they, they wanted a drama. You know, we wanted to give them like Robin Big. We wanted to give them a comedy. Or at least a comedic documentary totally because it's not like it's not a serious premise for a show you know it should be goofy one of the things we in, in hindsight is that we should have petitioned for more cr like creative control decision on oh i think about that all the time from the like very beginning we're like <laughs> this is gonna be hilarious it's a joke to us more or less like here's a way to see like how hilarious we are yeah yeah i i agree that you guys had the personality for a show like that and there's actually the potential for you to do something entertaining. And I'm sure that if you had passed on the show, you'd probably be looking back right now, wondering if you could have been fucking Beyonce. Right, exactly. Now, what about the money? I'm sure they were dangling something nice. It was, um, at the time, a lot of money. And that's that. I mean, obviously, that sways the decision. I mean, you know, that's you can't say that doesn't play into the decision. I mean, there was compensation for sure. And obviously, like, yeah, but I think people have this perception that you made millions of dollars. They no, definitely no, no. did at the time. I remember that. Yeah, the that was one of the things that got. It was like, oh my god, they got paid three million, three million dollars. Oh yeah, there was like a number. There was <laughs> like, a number. People, yeah, like, yeah, right. I heard. I mean, like millions. It really was in the millions. It, it, look, it was it was good, but it it ain't that good. We would be <laughs> All sitting we kept here saying was. If we had been paid what you think we have gotten paid, you mean fuck you, Mike? Like, yeah, I'd be we, like fuck you. You don't like even, it? There wouldn't be a third record. Yeah, <laughs> we'd just be like, just fucking go well, it was beach. a sellout thing. You know, it was still like the age of being called that. So that's why I think fans attached a number to it because like this amount is too much. We weren't at a fuck you money or a fuck you success level. Say, so let's say honestly, or even Chroma had gone way bigger. If we have a number one hit, you are playing Blackberry's corporate party. Major corporations are buying these songs for commercials. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you're you're put on. Oh, for sure. But this whole thing is super corporate. I mean, it's a laughable amount of corporate sponsors yeah. on one I thing. Mean, like, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like KFC, like, good God. Yeah, that's dark. Um, I mean, and their logos are yeah. on the fucking front of the building. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, yeah. Really weird. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I agree. I do remember us saying, we want a million dollars. Yeah, I remember that definitely. Because, <laughs> yeah. like Chris, 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 we're get like, us a million dollars. We'll do it for a million. <laughs> Which at the time seemed like so much money. Right. And on top of that, the project was 25, a $25 million project. No, 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 no. $35 million. It was like 34. More, dude. More. It was what he's saying is the amount of money being spent on it was in the 30 to $50 million the range. The construction of this bubble was millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. The production was massive. I remember there was a. There was a team of people 
camped out in little mini igloos behind production the huts like living this project with us <laughs> all right so what happens when you say we want a million dollars they say no they say <laughs> very simple <laughs> absolutely not they say no but here they were i think aware of where they the band was they approached a certain level of band because they knew what that certain level of band would cost right right so you ask for a million they say no to a full rock so what did you negotiate for uh we negotiated an exhaust fan for weed. That was <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, pretty much all we wanted. We're, we're like, pretty upfront about that. I think we were like, we want a million dollars. They're like, no, you're gonna get what you get. And we say, okay, can we smoke weed in there? <laughs> no, there it wasn't a can weed. It's, it's like, like, yeah, yo, we need yeah. this, How, <laughs> fam. Like, yo, we we'll gotta do, do this. this if we can smoke weed in there. And they're like, okay, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. I mean, plus, uh, I'm sure they would like for you to be fucked up on TV. Yeah. I mean, all these reality shows that people watch, you, you don't think these guys are breaking tables because they've had a few too many beers. Like, <laughs> they're doing a shitload of coke. You yeah. just can't show it on camera. That's like... Yeah, but that was never your thing. No. You guys are stoners. I, I, the negotiations didn't last long. We just need a place to, to get high. Part of the reason that Cartel was successful as a band was because they were really easy to deal with. For me as a manager, they did what, you know, within reason they were asked to do. And so when this came around, it was no different. They asked for a fan to smoke weed and everybody's like, yeah, these guys are the best. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah. these guys are great. They have a great attitude. They're fucking nice to all the production people. They show up on time. People want wanted right. to do what they ask within we're reason. always cognizant of being that way with people like it's really it's, important really like important. whether it's being appreciative of the work that people are doing with us or just being easy to work with like you've we've been apologized to for the way some room looks and doesn't and isn't outfitted with stuff and we're like who cares yeah right right the deal is awfully big to some people and to us it was just never that big so, so they present this whole proposal to you i mean is this something that I, I'm I'm under the impression I could be wrong. I think they've been built stuff. I think it was like happening and they were plugging the band in as the production. So we're building this bubble no matter what. Definitely. We saw some footage of this, you know, and there's like an airplane hangar where this thing's being welded together and made and built and designed and like people are like wearing hard hats and slings and <laughs> roped into things and like belaying down on this thing and building it and then disassembling it and then shipping it to new york city like what the fuck they were really <laughs> focused on the structure like they really liked that and thought that was so weird and cool and it's like that's not at all what any of us cared about the bubble took six months to build and over two thousand man hours made from 25 tons of steel and a thick fiberglass coating this bad boy can withstand 150 mile an hour winds a snowstorm even an earthquake but hopefully not all at once they're like, oh, this thing can withstand hurricane winds. We're like, no, it can't. Yeah, like, fuck you, dude. It's sitting a, on some a, fucking this wood. Is, this is a fucking erector set. I can see the ground right there through this thing. Like, <laughs> so these adults have built you a uh, a very expensive toy igloo that you'll be living in, and uh, the deal is done. The show's happening. I think you should take us to the first episode. You know, you're in New York. Everything's ready. It's time to start the show. Yeah, so give me a sense of what were you doing? You know, where were you? We were at the Bowery that day, really high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was myself and the band and Mike McCoy. We went to Balthazar for dinner. And then we took like an SUV. Gary was his name. Gary was the driver? Gary was the driver, the Russian guy. He, oh, yeah. And he drove us to the pier. And, and we're like sitting there 
in the car and fans are out there. You know, you can watch like, it. And people, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it becomes very, very real. Tonight, we're taking Atlanta rock band Cartel and giving them just 20 days to write, produce, and record a brand new album. <laughs> so let's just start there. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Five guys, 20 days, one record. Yeah. Let's talk about this record. So <laughs> <laughs> one thing I've always found interesting <laughs> was... Um, just how quickly you guys recorded that record in the bubble. <laughs> so apparently the premise of the show was to write and record a record in 20 days. They were very specific about that wording and all yeah. of the promotional materials. And we didn't really understand that. <laughs> um, and again, like it's sort of the show as an entity was so separate from the band and the label. So the label owes us a budget. I mean, it's in the contract. Like, yeah, we have a recording budget and the show is so separate from that, that in our minds, we thought, well, let's record the record in a studio and then we'll go in the bubble and we'll do it again. We were going to use that to our advantage. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Sort of as a backup, as a backup plan to how terrible the bubble could sound. We only thought of it in sound and in just presentation. It wasn't, it wasn't to get out of the dramatics because we didn't even know that was coming. We didn't know that it was going to be you know, a thing to sort of push our buttons, if you will. We were just like, okay, well, if this studio was garbage, because again, it's a fucking erector set. So this is a <laughs> right. fucking studio. Yeah, I mean, this thing was constructed for television, not for, you know, actually recording a the record. The sound is terrible. Yeah. And we knew the probability of that. So we we're like, well, let's use the money that's owed to us. We're not going to get it for anything else. It's not a fucking bonus. Hey, you guys didn't use your recording budget? Well, here's $100,000. That's not going to happen. So... We go into Tree Sound again in the main, like, top-of-the-line studio. Well, on that note, uh, before we go too deep on that, let me just play you another clip. Guys, let's stay focused. I signed Cartel to Epic Records, and I crack a mean whip. We're not in a world anymore where there's any room for throwaway songs. You have to have an album that, from beginning to end, is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that guy, man. So, front to back, record's gotta be perfect. <laughs> So I didn't pick that scene just to goof on Peter Malkin. Peter Malkin! But if you're watching the show, where you guys are sitting is the the studio where the record has the record uh, been recorded. <laughs> and but my question is, was this supposed to be a secret? Never. We didn't quite know. We didn't care. It wasn't like Chris came to us and was like Dude, they cannot know you guys have recorded this. Everybody knew. And everyone knew. Like, yeah. they knew. Not the and, fans, but the, everybody right. on the inside knew what was going on. Did you know that you had to write a song in three days? That we didn't know. But was this something that MTV was really concerned about? I'm surprised that that wasn't. You kind of look at it and go, how did they not negotiate that kind of control? But it's really nothing that they could have. No, I think that it was just like. The record has to be good. The show has to be good. And those two things are kind of separate. Yeah, I, I That's see what a good you point. Mean. So I wanted to ask you about your your attitude going into the bubble. Of everyone, I feel like you were the one that was having the most fun. You were you were talking to fans on that box, the the box where you could talk from the bubble to the fans. I mean, that thing seemed like a bit of a nightmare. The guys were thanking me daily for manning that ATM bank box thing. I mean, like I worked that thing. Kevin goes up and mans the mic all the time we are in here to record an album and again i wasn't doing any work obviously i wasn't gonna record anything right right well i guess your job was more to be the reality tv star 
How was that? I've never been able to watch reality shows since without being able to pick up on what it's so easy to me to see what's fake and what's real. Whether you're in the bubble and you need to do taglines. And what are taglines? If you're ever watching a reality TV show and you, you hear someone who you know is not famous or an actor and they are talking normally and they sound like a person, but then they get to that one part where they say this really poignant sentence. Every day I wake up and I go, dude, you are the luckiest dude alive. That's a tagline. It's because it's this really constructive, important narrative. Yeah, yeah. right. And it's how they piece it all together. And, you know, and so at what point did you realize that they were, you know, kind of casting you? Because in the first episode, they're they're kind of making you out to be the annoying dickhead. Well, he he is the annoying dickhead. <laughs> let's, everybody, let's not get this. <laughs> yeah, let's, I mean, we they cast it pretty well from what I remember. I mean, <laughs> I'm definitely the first for comic relief. Why shouldn't things be funny? Um, and especially in that circumstance, if I have to turn it on one way or the other, I'm going to try to turn on the happy smiley face and fun stuff. <laughs> right, right. So how did you feel about all of the the drama that they were trying to ratchet up? It just seemed like some real world shit where they're trying to get you to fight with each other. These guys have known each other their whole lives. They're in a touring band. They spend every waking hour together. They're not going all of a sudden going to get in these arguments and like fight with each other unnecessarily because they're, they live together all the time. They know how to deal with each other. Yeah. That's not going to happen just because the camera's here. And that's when they came up with all these stupid fucking gimmicks to kind of make stuff happen because it's boring. <laughs> right. I guess I'm curious whether Kevin, if you realized that uh that they were kind of twisting your words or that they were trying to put words in your mouth was it was that obvious when it was happening no um you only got a sense of what they were going for when you'd be offered taglines so we were all interviewed separately in the studio recording room so when we weren't recording and it's like the end of the day we're in that same room like lit up and we're being asked questions but it's then, like the confessional on right, the real world like every you sit in the room and the show you've ever so seen. what are they feeding you so you're just answering questions the way we're sort of doing it right now and then i just uh last second we do a couple taglines and then you would see what like, they're up to yeah, yeah, yeah like what'd you say and yeah but did you do it did you talk shit in there i can't say that i was like fuck that to every one of them there are ones that i was like i can do that but there was one what they say there was one that didn't sit well with any of us and i was like i'm not saying that i'm not doing that right and we all talked after we had done our individual things We're like you didn't say anything did you He's like that's bullshit and jeff's like oh i said it <laughs> <laughs> and uh so there's it's oddly enough i think if you watch it i think most of the taglines are jeff, jeff please Please let me record bass today. Whether his delivery or he just didn't care or it doesn't matter, he could give those. And again, I think we all gave some because they seemed harmless. Well, you know, whatever. I personally delivered one of those tags. Oh, uh, did you get one outside? Yeah, 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 exactly. My bubble experience started with Chris calling me to explain what was happening with the bubble and to ask if athletics could do the design for the record package. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, there's one stipulation though. You guys got to go in the bubble. <laughs> Going in. Yeah, you got to go into the bubble to uh, present the designs. They they need it for TV. And I remember thinking, uh, well, all right, I, I guess that's cool. You know, and then the time comes. You guys are in the bubble, and we need to go in and present. When you get there, you first have to go into this little production igloo and get mic'd up. You get a little battery pack on your belt and, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> I do a short little pre-interview for the producer and, you know, and then we're in there with you guys. First thing I remember 
it smelled bad. <laughs> you guys had already been in there a while. We present the designs, and uh, and Wes really killed it. I mean, everyone loved the peach tree. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole thing goes great. You know, it was the shortest design review. Yeah. So we're all good. You know, we've got our record cover. I'm feeling pretty good. I step outside the bubble. You know, before I can leave, the producer needs an exit interview. She's asking me, how to go in there? <laughs> and I'm explaining that, yeah, yeah, it went great. You know, they love the ideas. And um, I think we're in good shape. Yeah. So then she starts rephrasing her questions. <laughs> yeah, but this is the record cover. I mean, they must be freaking out. And I'm like, uh, nah, nah. No, I mean, I think they're in good spirits. Yeah, but but they know this is this is make or break. They love make or break. Everything, they love everything, everything is make or break. It's make or break. So we have to treat each song like it's no longer a single. It's a sonic weapon. So then it hits me, you know, and I, I tell her, hey, let me let me start over. Give me that question again. <laughs> so she says, uh, yeah, yeah. So how'd it go in there? Oh, well, they are freaking out. Turned it up. I mean, we're only talking about the record cover. <laughs> I mean, make or break. They love make or It's so funny. Make or break was such a tagline. That was my little bubble experience. So I can only imagine having to please people like that every day. I, they're making a TV show and need you to talk a bunch of shit. Yeah. They want you to like totally like, you know, and how'd you feel about this guy when he did this? And you're like, oh, this doesn't matter. You know, like, yeah, you, know, you want yeah. to be like super upset. And I mean, like, when when we watched the show, every single dramatic moment that we had made it. <laughs> well, speaking of drama, I'm curious about the recording process because I know that you did actually record in there. You know, I recorded an intro, <laughs> 15 seconds of music. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that for all of us, the response to the record wasn't what we wanted it to be. And I think a lot of people, a lot of fans were mad because they did think that it was all done in the bubble. And that's why they didn't like it. They thought this record was rushed and all of that. They oh, thought yeah. that was real. Like the fans thought because that's what they were told. Sure, sure. I mean, I think every part of the bubble just changed the eyes and ears on which people perceived cartel forever. Definitely. If we would have known that that record would have been received so poorly because of the bubble, we would not have done the bubble. Well, sure. I, I could see how you would say that now, but at the time, I don't know. And I mean, plus you made a good record. I mean, we've had so many people come to us after the fact and be like, I was wrong. That record rips. So on and so forth. That you know, the, the reception with time has been yeah, overwhelmingly positive. Well, I well that makes sense to me. I mean, I think you guys did make an interesting record. I mean, because you guys could have phoned in just some bullshit. If we really wanted to go for it, the move would have been to write twelve of the shittiest bubble gum. Whatever <laughs> corporate America is going to eat up, whatever our publishing company is going to fucking sell to movies. I mean, it would have been the time to truly yeah. sell out. Not put a blues song at track 13 that's four minutes longer. We wrote what was naturally the next progressive thing for us to do. Yeah, I would agree. I do think there's something to that idea that you're talking about that the bubble shapes people's perceptions of the record. I think the problem lies that I don't think people viewed the show and the record separately. Uh, they yeah, they yeah, definitely yeah. didn't. So no, they definitely did. The whole thing is judged in one. When you're judging the record, you're judging the show, and that's 
that's why it was what it was. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, maybe one of the reasons that I always heard the record differently is that you guys gave me a copy of it before you even went into the bubble. I really wholeheartedly think that the reception to the record would have been drastically different had there just been a natural progression without the show. Yeah. I mean, it was just such a big thing looming over the record. The show was bigger than the band, Hmm. not the other way around. And so when you do something that has... Yeah, when it has that much gravity, it's hard not to get sucked in. But let's talk about what happened after the record came out. You know, what was going on with, uh, what was going on with Epic? So basically, you, you start to see the label becomes cognizant of the way the show is being received, thus the probability of the way the record's going to be received. Sure. That blood in the water that we were afraid of is now in the water anyway. Yeah, so they're, they're disappointed because they thought this was going to be... No, they thought you know, they, they thought they were getting like a total free... Like they thought we were going to be the biggest band on the planet. They wouldn't have to work anything. No, they thought Will was going to be like a, a celebrity like a recognizable celebrity. And I I don't think any of us thought that. And that's what's so odd about it is that they should know better than us. Sometimes in those corporate situations, I I feel like people just want to believe. It's like, hey, if we all talk about the fantasy enough, maybe it'll come true. Yeah. But I think the reality for you, for, for Cartel, is pretty amazing. These friends that I grew up with, played in first bands with, they managed to spend their 20s in a rock band put out records, played a million shows, went all around the world. That shit's amazing. Because because what's the alternative? The alternative is a desk job. Yeah. To me, your story is just hilarious. It's like an inside joke that came to pass. <laughs> anyway, I don't know how you feel. You pop out the other side of this thing, you're, you're 30 years old, and now what? I'm sure regular life feels a bit awkward at times. That's exactly how it feels. I mean, like every time we come home from tour, you come back, you have all this stuff in between. All these days are different, yet somehow the same. And then you come home and you're on your couch and you're like, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) It was so tough to feel grounded. And the whole experience felt like that. So what's it feel like now? Or, Or maybe a better question is, what's it like trying to relate to people that haven't been road dogging for a decade? Yeah. Because I'm sure you run into people and they want to ask, you know, um, what do you, what have you been up to? <laughs> right. And you start to fill those blanks in for people and they just look at you like, are you serious? I really want to make a resume that it just so that someone picks up and goes, uh, Mr. Sanders, can you come in for an interview? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have some questions. What, what is, what is all this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It says rock drummer location earth. Oh, yeah, so that's what I've been up to. <laughs> really? Well, as someone on professional walkabout, I've, I've had the same thought. I don't know what my resume would look like. Being in your 30s and being sort of out of the whirlwind that is that, I think the last thing I would ever want, even though I thought I wanted it, would to be a career band. Like having a tour now, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, it's brutal. But you guys have graduated to a place where you play if you want to play, right. but otherwise... I, you're on about your life, not just the band's life. I think it's kind of nice to have it be this nugget of time. And the fact that it was 10, 12, whatever years. That's a lot longer than most people get. Certainly longer than most musicians. It's longer than most athletes. Yeah, I think football, well, average football players like three years in the NFL. Like three? Three? That means you're what, 24 and you're not in the NFL and that's like an adjustment period to you? Like, Yeah, you got to learn how to coach high school. How else are you going to keep the dream alive? <laughs> that's one of the things I was always afraid of. I would have hated to think that I had unfinished business in that business. You know, like 
have a ghost, if you will, about it. There was, there's nothing like lingering. I look back on it incredibly fondly because it's more than I ever imagined. Oh, Yeah. And everything I ever wanted. <laughs> <laughs> That was great. I mean, I'm, I'm glad he opened up so much. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I loved his whole perspective on the whole experience. Um, I think now the question is just how do you adjust to civilian life? It can definitely be challenging. And I've seen people fail miserably, but, uh, you know, I'm not worried about Kevin. No, no. Yeah. If there's anyone that uh, will be just fine in life, it's definitely Kevin Sanders. Every day I wake up and I go, dude, you are the luckiest dude alive. How do you want to end it? What do you want to do after that? music man we need some we need music yeah yeah which track what do you want to do i don't know i mean well i did have one idea i was thinking it might be fun to have like, like a mashup of kevin on drums kevin sanders signature break beats hell no man you can do whatever you want in your free time but when we're on the public announcement clock there's no three minute drum tracks people are going to unsubscribe <laughs> okay what track would you like to use oh you, you have something queued up <laughs> Oh, oh, is this the last one? It's the ender, yeah. Q and A? This is A. Oh, <laughs> this is, okay. This is perfect. I've, I've, been, I've done what I'm doing. I'm very familiar with your catalog. At least it's going out Joseph Pepper, such hot licks. Definitely. You've been listening to Public Announcement. I'm Chris Black. And I'm James Ellis. We would like to thank Kevin Sanders and Cartel, MTV, Dr. Pepper, KFC, McDonald's, Walmart, <laughs> Neiman Marcus. <laughs> this episode was produced and edited by Jim Nicholas. Visit publicannouncement.org to see photos from the bubble. You can also find us in iTunes. Go subscribe and Birdman 5 Star, our podcast. Yeah, and you can look for us next week. New episodes should be on Tuesday, right? Hopefully. I forgot that this is some ride off into the sunset shit. <laughs> oh, but there's like way more of the song. Yeah. It's like it's like 10 more minutes. No, it's not 10 minutes. It's like, oh no, you're, yeah. Not, it's, it's nine minutes from now. No, it's a 10 minute total. Are we, what do we end on? Is that the last thing we say? Because that's pretty funny if it is. <laughs>